0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Ohio Politics Explained, the secret map in my pocket edition. This week we're talking about what the candidates said at the debates, whether redistricting really is the story that never ends, how Republicans want to change the cash bail system, and why disabled parents are upset with Ohio's family court system. Joining me this week is Haley B. Miller, fresh off her trip down to Central State University. Welcome back to the show, Haley. Good to be here on another fake spring day. Yeah, I fell for fall spring last week, and I'm trying not to fall for it this week. (laughs) But let's get started. So you went down to Central State on Monday to watch the candidates for U.S. Senate debate each other. In the morning, we saw the three Democrats get on stage. And what were your big takeaways? The
1: main thing that was interesting about this debate is that it was actually the first time that they've debated, despite calls for months now from Morgan Harper for... Tim Ryan to debate her. He'd been rebuffing those requests, but finally those two and Tracy Johnson got on stage Monday, and you really saw the differences between these candidates in terms of what kind of Democratic campaign they're trying to run. We've we've kind of known this already, but it was interesting to see play out in full form. So you have Tim Ryan, who's really focusing on worker issues, the economy. Um, he just put out an ad focused on China. So he's trying to take the Sherrod Brown approach of campaigning. And and he's like the populist
0: union guy.
1: Right. Yeah. Very, you know, trying to appeal to the blue collar workers. He always visits different manufacturers and that kind of thing. So you heard a lot about that. And then you have Morgan Harper, who's running a much more progressive campaign. She's the only candidate, for example, that supports Medicare for all and expanding the U.S. Supreme Court. And she definitely used a debate to take some shots at Ryan um, for taking PAC money, for sort of aligning himself with defense contractors, things like that. Um, you know, she she argues he's part of the business as usual in Washington and didn't hold back. Um, and then Ryan's response was, well, I'm going to support, you know, workers regardless of who they're working for. And Here's XYZ example of how I've taken on, you know, people at the more corporate executive level. So it was interesting to see
0: play out. And then that evening, we got the seven Republicans. So how did that go? It was something. Um, <laughs> A lot more candidates on the stage.
1: Yeah, unlike previous debates, in addition to the top five, we also had Mark Pukita and Neil Patel on stage who. Really aren't polling that highly. They're seen as sort of long shot candidates, but they were able to meet the debate commission's criteria. The otherwise, the debate is a lot of the same of what we've seen. Minus uh, there weren't any, wasn't any uh, chest bumping this time. No around. No fireworks. No, uh, you know, just a lot of. Um, De- talking issues about uh, like the border, the 2020 election. A lot of people making false claims about the 2020 election specifically, and the debates moderator Karen Castler did a great job moderating and fact checking as the debate went on, which did not make her popular with the candidates or the audience. But it yeah. uh, it was a good to. I mean, it was good for people watching to know that you know a lot of the information coming out of their mouths about the election in particular was not correct
0: yeah only uh matt dolan uh acknowledged that biden was the legitimate winner of the 2020 election and he said his opponents needed to move on from this narrative but ironically admitting that might hurt him in the ohio primary no
1: yeah we just saw something interesting play out with this um and uh representative mo brooks uh trump had been endorsing him but then brooks made similar comments um you know you need to move we need to move on from this that kind of thing and trump actually ended up withdrawing his support for him and as we know the candidates in ohio were trying to attract get their own endorsement from trump so continuing to cast out on the election and in more extreme cases, say that it was completely stolen from Trump is certainly one way that they think they can get it.
0: And then we saw the two Democrats who want to be the next governor of Ohio. The Republicans didn't have a debate on Tuesday night. Governor Mike DeWine declined. And then one of his main challengers, Jim Renese, backed out. But we did see Nan Whaley and John Cranley or Nan and Cran, as we call them when <laughs> we're not around the newsroom. <laughs> And they gave us a peek of what the fall general election campaign might be like. They both hit DeWine for the House Bill 6 scandal and for his stance on gun control. Um, for folks who don't remember, Nan Whaley is the former mayor of Dayton, who was the mayor during the mass shooting in the Oregon district. And she said it was never in her worst nightmares. Did she think that the thing DeWine was going to do after that was, quote, make it worse? And what she meant by that was signing a stand your ground law, signing a constitutional or permanent list carry law.
1: Yeah, it was a very cordial debate for the most part. I mean, Cranley and Whaley are longtime friends. Uh, they are part of a text group that our colleague <laughs> Jesse reported on a few weeks We've ago. we talked about that. Um, you know, I think the the biggest sticking point between them and the debate was when Whaley pointed out that Cranley has only recently decided that he supports access to abortion yeah. and For Democrats, this is a big issue in whatever race you're talking about, because people are worried that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to restrict abortion access and strike down um, much of what the protections that exist under Roe v. Wade. So that was kind of the key way that Whaley differentiated herself this week, I think.
0: Yeah, she basically made the case that in a state like Ohio, which is has a lot of anti-abortion legislation that's been passed in the last couple of years, that perhaps Democrats didn't want somebody who's sort of a Johnny-come-lately to uh, the pro-choice movement. Now, what Cranley did say was that um, his opinion about abortion shifted um, during fertility decisions with his wife. And basically, he agreed that his wife was right, which always is kind of a fun moment. <laughs> If only more men came to that realization. <laughs> if my husband is listening to this now. Um, I'm kidding. So our second topic is redistricting, as always. Um, and let's just start from the beginning with what happened over the weekend with the state House and Senate maps. The seven-member redistricting commission, which is five Republicans and two Democrats, paid these independent mapmakers to draw the fourth yes fourth set of maps they worked all weekend and then on monday night the republicans were like lol just kidding and they pulled a totally different set of maps out of their back pockets people in the audience cried cheaters and booed but the maps were approved for three and they're most certainly headed back to court
1: yeah, it was a really shocking moment. And the days before that, you saw the redistricting commission meeting every day, working with these independent map makers that were hired. You could watch
0: the map makers like screens as they yeah. like move the boundaries around.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was streamed online. It was very transparent. You had a lot of people saying, "This is how this was supposed to work," all along. And then, surprise, we have new maps that, as you noted, are probably not going to uh, get the approval of the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, these races are not on the May 3rd ballot, and we still don't really know when the primary for those races is going to be, so there's just a lot of uncertainty right now.
0: Yeah, there is a federal case where a trio of federal judges um, are debating whether to actually move the entire primary to accommodate these races. Uh, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose says that they could move the primary races to May 24th at the earliest or August 2nd at the latest, so... I don't know but when it comes to the congressional maps they seem a little more set for now it kind of looks like the latest version which well technically not constitutional will be what we use for 2022
1: yeah it sounds like the supreme court is gonna hit pause on reviewing those maps until after the may primary so um you know those will be on the ballot for now
0: for a single election
1: yeah um (laughs) And, you know, the candidates who registered under those districts will be able to proceed in those districts. What happens after that? I have no idea. No one but, knows. <laughs> um, That's at least that's at least where we're at for now. So it does seem like the state's going to move forward with a May 3rd primary for those races, the statewide races, the local races, and then probably hold what will be a very low turnout election for legislative races at some point.
0: Yeah, and before we move on to our third topic, um, we also just wanted to let you know that uh, the two groups suing over these maps have asked the Ohio Supreme Court to hold the commission in contempt. Now, the court had threatened to do this a couple weeks ago when the commission blew past its deadline. But what these groups are saying is like, we did this whole map making process, and then they pulled this alternative map out of their pockets. They're basically flouting the Supreme Court's orders, and you should hold them in contempt. And I don't know. We'll see what happens with that, too.
1: <laughs> yep. It's it's anyone's guess right now.
0: Our third topic is bail, as in the money people sometimes have to pay to stay out of jail while awaiting trial. Traditionally, bail is imposed when someone presents a flight risk. It's kind of like insurance that you'll come back to court, and it can increase on in the severity of your crime. But a handful of Republicans want to amend Ohio's Constitution to give courts more leeway by adding public safety into the mix. So I'm just going to read you the amendment, because it's short. It says, when determining the amount of bail, the court shall consider public safety, a person's criminal record, the likelihood a person will return to court, and the seriousness of a person's offense. So they're just adding in those little extra layers. It
1: sounds like this came about because Attorney General Dave Yost is pretty unhappy with the recent Supreme Court decision that basically said, you know, there's a limit to what judges can take into consideration when it comes to imposing bail on defendants. And something that I find unusual about this is that judges already do have the leeway to address, you know, a public safety threat flight risk by imposing, you know, either more money or additional requirements on someone if they are temporarily let out of jail
0: or even remand. They can they can control who you can talk to. They can ankle modern you. They can do house arrest. They can do mandatory drug testing.
1: Right. And so I think it's this open question of whether, you know, a judge really has enough power to say, you know, I believe this person poses this much of a public safety threat and this is why. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to impose the bail based on that even though our criminal justice system is supposed to have an innocent until proven guilty mindset
0: yeah and not all republicans are on board so the buckeye institute which is like a conservative local think tank uh, their president said that this was absolutely a step in the wrong direction and that like if an individual is a threat to society like judges should use their authority to detain them pre-trial rather than increasing bail
1: yeah and you know so we'll see if this makes it on the ballot, but I think this will be unpopular with a lot of people who already feel like the bail system is unfair to people with you know, lower incomes and um, people who don't have access to
0: certain resources. So our fourth and final topic is parents with disabilities. So about one in 10 Ohio parents has some disability. And this could be a physical difference, like using a wheelchair, a chronic illness like diabetes, or a different kind of internal wiring, like being on the autism spectrum. And what these families say is that the court system isn't always the best. Specifically, they claim that they've been discriminated against in child custody hearings, not because their disabilities are impacting their children, but because they might harm the kids in the future. And so uh, this is a bipartisan effort. There are two laws, one in the House, one in the Senate, and they're making an effort to sort of say that you cannot use somebody's disability as a reason for denying custody.
1: I had never even heard about this until your story. I did have one question about it, though. It sounds like some people were... In the disability community, you're concerned about how this could impact folks with uh, mental health struggles. What's what's the at that aspect of
0: it? So there's this idea that they want to create almost a separate system for evaluating these kinds of parents and sort of to determine whether a disability could impact your ability to parent, and that they would have to make reasonable accommodations before they took your kids away. But there's this idea that if you create a separate system, that somehow you're creating an unequal system, or there's this some implication that these parents need extra scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And so they said the wording and the language around this is really important, that like preventing discrimination is great, but creating this totally separate set of hoops that they specifically have to jump through could potentially be problematic.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It does seem like, I mean, this bill certainly has the right intentions, though, and some of the personal anecdotes that you cited in your story about people who just haven't been able to, you know, spend the time with their kids because of um, their disabilities. It certainly seems like an unfair system.
0: Yeah. One of the ones that really struck me was um, there was they worked with a new mom who had a visual impairment, but she's also a new mom and I've given birth. And, you know, sometimes you have stitches in places you should never have stitches. And you've had all these kinds of drugs and you've pushed a human out of you. And she asked for help going to the bathroom and the social worker like wrote down like maybe She can't use the restroom on her own Because of her disability and I'm like nah Maybe she can't use the restroom because she just had a baby Right like I needed Help like sitting down To pee just if this is TMI After you've given birth is a wild experience Not good (laughs) Um, I'll leave it at that. But one more thing before you go. If redistricting is making your head spin, our lovely colleague Jesse Balmert made a 90-second video that will get you up to speed. It's a complex topic, but Jesse really breaks it down both in her writing and her videos in ways that will it'll make it easy to understand. Like I, I basically phone a friend every time we have to talk about it on the podcast. So she's our internal expert, and she should be yours too.
1: Yes, we are all grateful to her knowledge and willingness to sit through hours and hours
0: of redistricting meetings. She's doing the Lord's work. If you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at beaconjournal.com.